Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. But the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in that same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to a familiar text. We're thankful for the opportunity to consider it again, to consider it afresh, to consider it anew. May you grip us with the thought that you are a God who delights to save the lost. May that truth never become full hum to us. May it be something that is always vibrant and full of life and joy. We never get over this wondrous thought. We pray that this day you might even save some who are lost in this place, causing them to be born again to a living hope granting them repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, granting them eternal life. I pray you do this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come this morning to one of the most well-known and most beloved texts in the Scriptures, Luke 15. On the occasion recorded here, Jesus teaches three parables. But it's the third and final one that has particularly left a huge impression on the world. Even in our predominantly biblically illiterate culture, there are few who would not know what you were talking about if you made a reference to the prodigal son. The themes and language of this parable are deeply ingrained in our minds and in our hearts. We find it in spiritual and literary traditions. Shakespeare borrowed from it. Ballets have been written upon it. Songs have been recorded about it. And paintings have been produced of it. Although it technically misses the root meaning of the word, which we'll see more a little bit this week and next week, wayward children are often called prodigal sons or prodigal daughters. Should someone throw a big party, it's not uncommon for them to talk about killing the fatted calf. These phrases all derive their meaning from this beloved parable, which is full of a rich literary luster. It's memorable for the way in which it pulls us in. Our emotions are brought into the text, and it invites us in for an examination. Who can read these without recognizing themselves in the story? We're humbled by it. And we're reminded of the riches of God's free grace. The parables are concise. Yet they're powerful. They're colorful. And they're personally engaging. Charles Dickens referred to the parable of the prodigal son as the greatest short story ever written. Jesus, as a master storyteller, indelibly etches his truth upon us. While it is a literary masterpiece, we can go on and on talking about it. It's recognized as such by Christians and non-Christians alike. It's my hope that we wouldn't stop with a detached appraisal of its 
literary qualities, but that we would come to recognize the spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching through this literary device. I pray that we'll recognize afresh and appreciate the riches of God's grace in saving the lost, and that we would enter into His joy. But this parable, as most of the parables, has suffered at times from people's failure to come to grips with this main point. Sometimes that's due to the fact that people just fail to read the parables within their context. Context is always so important. Not only immediate context, but further context. Context of the book, context of the entire Bible. Sometimes they come to wrongful conclusions regarding these parables because they failed to read the parable in context. At other times, it might be the result of some misguided effort or attempt to sort of try to allegorize all the details ad infinitum. And somewhere in the midst of it, you lose the main point of what Jesus is trying to say. So to guard against both of those problems, I want to spend time this morning in an examination of the first several verses here, verses 1 through 10 of Luke 15. I believe that all three of these parables go together. And there's a sense in which I felt almost like I had to go through to the end of the chapter to capture it all in one sermon, but I've decided that you probably didn't want to stay here for three hours this morning. So we're going to look at the first ten verses together, but keep in mind all the while that these go together. They were set on one occasion to one audience... And there's some building, escalation throughout the three parables. There's similarity between the three, as we'll note together. But there's also an escalation that happens throughout the three parables. And so we will have to hold some of that in suspense for the next week. Our interpretation of this set of parables must make sense of why Jesus told all of these three parables on this occasion. And it must fit within the larger context of Luke's Gospel, as well as the much larger context of all of the Scriptures. That's going to guard us against improper sorts of interpretations. Now remember last time, Jesus finished his statements about counting the cost and what it takes, what it means to be a disciple of his by making several statements. He asked those who were wishing to follow him if they understood what they what discipleship actually meant. He made several demands. He says his disciples must hate father, mother, sister, brother, children even their own lives. They must give up their own possessions. They must take up their cross and follow Him. But all of those statements that Jesus made, as we noted, were done on a much grander scale by Jesus Himself. He wasn't asking His disciples to do anything that He hadn't already done or was going to do in their stead. Jesus left His Father's home in glory. He laid aside His riches and became poor. He became a man, being born in abject humility. He endured the scorn and reproach and persecution of the world. He took up his cross and he laid down his life. Jesus is asking if those who want to follow him are really acquainted with what he had come to do. Do they really know what they're signing up for? Yet simultaneously, Jesus warns in that same text that like in the arena of war, When war is upon you, you have to make a decision one way or the other. You can't just put it off. If you can't confront the army coming against you with the soldiers you've got, then you better find a way to send out a delegation and seek terms of peace. How glorious it is to recognize that Jesus is the one through whom we can have peace with God. He invites us to partake of the salvation that He provides. Having been saved by Christ, we're utterly changed. And those who are bought by the blood of Jesus find it then their distinct honor and privilege to give their lives for Him who gave His life for them. Jesus concludes all of that in verse 35 of chapter 14 by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we come to Luke 15, and verses 1 through 3 are extremely important. They're not only helpful in forming a transition to Jesus' parables, but they give us a context for understanding the three parables we'll look at. If we neglect these three narrative verses, we may fail to recognize what Jesus' purpose is in telling us these three parables in the first place. So we're going to take our time here. Verse chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, leaves us wondering, who is it that has ears to hear? Who is it that will respond to Jesus' summons to listen? The next verse, albeit it's separated by a chapter division, the next verse tells us. Look at verse 1. 
Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. What did Jesus just said in the end of chapter 14? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. First verse of chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Now those words don't have particular shock value for many of us. We've become quite familiar with the idea that Jesus is a Savior, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Perhaps at times we even take that fact for granted. Our day is one in which discussions of God's holiness and wrath and justice are considered off the board for discussion. They're considered unbecoming of God. But God tells us in His Word that He is all of those perfections. God is angry over sin, and He will punish the wicked. Yet it's also true that God is gracious and merciful and loving. Now, the tendency among the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day was to conceive of God in the opposite extreme. Whereas today, people don't want to speak much about His justice and His wrath. That was seemed to be home base for them. Many believed that God's attitude towards sinners was one of stern disapproval. They taught that the only way to gain divine favor was to earn it through righteous living. Hence, we understand the Pharisees' preoccupation with legalism. How do the Pharisees and scribes respond, though? Okay, so we have tax and sinners coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Would the Pharisees and scribes draw near to Jesus, too? Would they have ears to listen to Jesus? Well, the text tells us that they at least came close enough to see who was actually drawing near to Jesus. They're in the background there, observing the scene unfold before them. And they observe tax collectors and sinners. Verse 1. Which, as far as they're concerned, look at verse 2. This man receives sinners. They just all group together. They're just a bunch of sinners. Tax collectors and sinners, they're just all sinners. Tax collectors were ostracized and regarded as outcasts by most Jews. This was the case for at least two reasons. One was that they were viewed as traitors because they worked for the Roman Empire who was exercising control and dominion over Israel. Rome stood between Israel and its own independence. So tax collectors were working for the enemy. But there's a second element that made them hated by many. It was the fact that they made their living off the difference between what was required for them to generate in tax dollars and what they actually charged the people in tax. So if they were told to extract 100 denarii from someone, they might charge them 125 and then keep the difference. This led to a whole lot of taxation problems where particularly greedy tax collectors would enrich themselves at the expense of others, sometimes drastically overcharging for taxes for their own personal gain. We can only imagine that men in that position didn't have many friends. Their very occupation seems to be at odds with the good of Israel. The title sinners, tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus. The title sinners was kind of a phrase that was used as a catch-all for thieves and drunkards and prostitutes. Insert anything in the blank there. These were immoral persons who, or those who were involved in occupations that were considered to be at odds with the law of God. And it's these that are flocking to Jesus. These, having ears, are drawing near to hear Jesus. A lot of the Pharisees respond to this. Verse 2 tells us that the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling. Grumbling. The word that's used here almost sounds like grumbling. Gangam zone, gangam zone. Grumble, grumble, grumble. The word is the one that's used to translate the action of Israel against Moses and Aaron in Exodus 15 and Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, verse 8, Moses explained that the people's grumbling was in reality not against them, Moses and Aaron, but actually against the Lord. The Pharisees and scribes here in this text are in the position of rebellious Israel in this action. They're behaving like the rebellious Israelites in the Old Testament. Not a good place to be in. Not a, a group you want to have company with. These grumblers and complainers exclaimed, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
in derisive fashion, they don't even use Jesus' name. This. This. And you supply man or one. This eats with sinners and tax collectors. He receives them and eats with them. This man has the gall to not only receive and welcome these sinners, but even to sit down and eat with them. To have any association with sinners was considered ceremonially contaminating. But Jesus went beyond this. Not only did he have loose association with them, but he sat down to meals with them. Now, maybe we don't always get this so well in our culture today, but to extend table fellowship to someone else was akin to a sacramental act whereby a deep acceptance was established. It's a major exception to the fact that this rabbi would sit down with such notorious sinners. Sadly, all the while, these Pharisees and scribes are unable to see how crucial this fact is to salvation. If Jesus refused to welcome sinners and to accept them into relationship with himself, there would be no hope of salvation for anyone. Who is the friend to the unlovely, to the depraved, to the rebellious sinner? Jesus is. Praise the Lord that Jesus is. Jesus wouldn't allow Pharisaic censure, though, to stop him from doing what he came to do. He came to save sinners, which he could scarcely do if he didn't meet with them, if he didn't interact with them. He didn't share the separatist philosophy of the scribes and Pharisees. He wasn't going to live off in some monastery and sequester himself away from everyone else to prevent from any ceremonial uncleanliness from occurring. He didn't sit with sinners to approve of their sinful behavior, but to restore them to his kingdom and to give them access to his joy. He befriended the undesirable. He befriended those who had no friends. And regardless of what others thought, he did so to bring them to God. Jesus received sinners to pardon them, to sanctify them, to make them fit for heaven. So what is meant as an insult by these Pharisees? Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus wears proudly. In fact, Jesus pushes further in this text, as the parables will demonstrate. He not only merely received or welcomed sinners unto himself, he came seeking sinners. He sought them out. He brought them to himself. He took the initiative in bringing to pass the present result. Jesus isn't sitting around waiting passively for sinners to come. He actively seeks them out. But instead of giving a direct explanation, Jesus instead communicates that truth via some parables. The main point now begins to become evident. The Pharisees and scribes are the ones on the outside. They're the ones without ears to hear, who don't want to listen. They're the ones grumbling. They're the ones complaining. They're the rebellious ones. They're the ones failing to enter into the joy that is found in God's kingdom while these tax collectors and sinners are being welcomed to the banquet table. Don't miss the stark irony here, friends. While the religious leaders grumble over Christ's ministry, men are being saved, and all of heaven is celebrating. The angels are rejoicing. What a strange scene indeed is this. Heaven is bursting with joy while earth is full of grumblers. So Jesus confronts the Pharisees and scribes through parables from everyday life. One is told from the perspective of a shepherd, another from that of a woman, and yet another from that of a father. All three of these do fit together, for, but for the sake of time today, we'll look at the first two and entitle this sermon, Lost and Found. Both of these parables rest upon the natural response that someone would take to losing and then subsequently finding something. Recognized loss, which is met with decisive action, careful searching, ends in finding, and great rejoicing. Both parables tell us that the actions taken are sensible and they're natural. You might expect any shepherd to search for a lost sheep and any woman to search for a lost coin. Jesus starts off both of the parables. What man wouldn't? What man among you wouldn't? What woman among you wouldn't? Who wouldn't do this? The first two parables in Luke 15 end up functioning like two jabs 
before an uppercut. An uppercut will wait for, for next time. But they are. They set up this, this scene. While many truths can be learned from these parables, I'd like to arrange our thoughts in the following manner this morning. First of all, we'll contemplate how these parables instruct us in what it means to be lost. What does it mean to be lost? And secondly, we'll consider what's required for the lost to be found. What's required for the lost to be found? Let's first answer the question, what does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be lost? Let's first consider the plight of being lost. What's so horrible about being lost? Look at the first parable Jesus tells what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? First introduced to a man. He has a hundred sheep. He suddenly realizes as he's counting them that he's one short. Might have been typical practice that at the end of the evening as he's putting the sheep down in a protected area for the night that he's counting them and as he counts, he recognizes that one is missing. One is missing. And a sheep on its own in the wild is in great peril. A sheep doesn't adapt to the wild. It doesn't adapt to the wild. It's vulnerable to the elements. And it will find it difficult even locating steady sources of sustenance. Even if it finds somehow a steady source of food and water, a sheep has many natural predators. And without the shepherd's protection, it's in grave trouble. Besides all of the natural enemies that that would come after a sheep. Even the terrain of the wilderness is situated against the sheep. There are many natural pitfalls that it could encounter difficulty and troubles with. And the sheep doesn't have a good internal compass. (laughs) It's not a homing pigeon. It doesn't just come on home. It continues to wander and wander and wander. Bottom line, left to itself, the sheep will run to its own ruin. Left to itself, a sheep will run to its own ruin. You see, the dreadful effects of sin are evident in all of us. Left to ourselves, we will all drive headlong down into sin and all of its disastrous consequences. Compared to the powers of Satan and the fallen, wicked world that we live in, we're helpless to win. We're weak. We're vulnerable. We're subject to every sort of spiritual malady. We are prone to wander. We sang in the hymn this morning, All I Have is Christ, the following words, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. The lost coin brings up a slightly different nuance, I believe. It might point to the ignorance that is inherent to those who are lost. Jesus tells, secondly, about a woman, verse 8. If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Relatively speaking, we've kind of increased the stakes here a little bit, haven't we? We went from one sheep in a hundred now to one coin in ten. And what we'll see next week is one son in two. The relative value has increased. Now, being an inanimate object, the coin does not sense its own lostness, does it? It doesn't. It's ignorant of its own condition. Therefore, the coin is also unaware of the fact that it's being sought after. The woman whose coin it is desperately conducts her search for the coin. And all the while, the coin lays motionless, unaware of the great effort expended towards its reclamation. It's insensible to all of this. Bottom line, it's possible to be lost and not know it. It's possible to be lost and not know it. Ever been there before? Ever been lost out in the middle of nowhere and maybe for a period of time you didn't know you were lost? And all of a sudden you recognized you were lost. But it's possibly lost and not know it. 
This does remind us of our spiritual state before God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no spiritual vitality. There's no breath of spiritual life in us apart from the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. We must be born again, Jesus says. And if we're not quickened to life, we remain insensible to our lostness. Charles Spurgeon provides a great analogy. The man who puts the fire escape against the window of a burning house may readily enough rescue those who are aware of their danger and who rush to the front and help him, or at least are submissive to him in his work of delivering them. But if a man were insane, if he played with the flames, if he was idiotic and thought that some grand illumination was going on and knew nothing of the danger but was only glamoured by the glare, then would it be hard work for the rescuer. Imagine the scene. The building's on fire. Destruction is coming. And there's a guy playing amidst the flames. Oh, does that describe us perhaps far too well. Those who are lost, this is their state, playing amidst the flames, unaware that the house is coming down all around them, that judgment is upon them. You were reminded of the glorious riches of grace. God must take the initiative to awaken the lost to their lostness, to expose their sin to them, to grant them repentance and faith that they might turn from sin to Christ and receive eternal life. Regeneration must precede repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are gifts from God to the lost. One of the biggest problems besetting the lost is that they're ignorant of their own lostness. And we see in these parables the initiative of the one seeking the lost thing. Very important. Not only do you see the peril of the lost, but we also see their need to be found. Their need to be found. The lost sheep, I think pictures as well, our dependence is obvious. When the lost sheep is found by the shepherd, he's placed upon the shepherd's shoulders and carried home. Now, we're going to talk more about the motivation and manner in which the shepherd does this in a few minutes. But for now, consider how dependent the sheep is upon the shepherd for help. Not only must the sheep be found, but it must be carried home. It's weak and frail, and it requires the effort of his shepherd to return him home. The sheep needs guidance, yes, but he needs more than merely guidance. He needs personal support, personal care, personal love. And all of the inabilities that are racked up in that sheep are more than compensated in the ability of the shepherd. The shepherd finds the sheep. The shepherd takes the sheep and puts them on his shoulders. Several commentators also note that among the earliest symbols of Christian art, even before the cross became a main symbol of Christianity, was the image of a shepherd carrying a sheep home on his back with the belly of that sheep right against his neck and the legs draped across his shoulders. It really is a beautiful picture of God's sovereign grace, isn't it? The shepherd does all the work in salvation. He finds the lost, ignorant, rebellious, wandering sheep. And he picks them up and puts them on his shoulders and carries them home. He seeks and finds the lamb and then carries it home on his shoulders. This is why Christianity is not a religion of works, but grace. Our salvation rests in Christ, who perfectly fulfilled all righteousness and accomplished the work of redemption on our behalf. We contribute nothing to our salvation. It is finished in Christ. We're completely dependent upon Him. While we are weak and powerless to defeat Satan and this fallen world system, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. In our weakness, God's power is made manifest. The lost sheep pictures how our dependence is so obvious. We need to be found. The coin might point out another element of this, another facet of our need to be found. It has to do with our value. You see, a drachma silver coin was valued at approximately one day's wages. To a poor woman, that would be a very significant amount. The ten coins that she had might have represented her entire savings. It also might have represented her dowry. Some believe it may have been connected to a piece of fabric and worn as a headdress of sorts, although there's lots of debate regarding that. Some people 
adamantly deny that to be the case. If this coin had any bridal significance, it might have carried sentimental value as well as monetary value. And any woman who has ever lost a wedding ring before can maybe identify with the feelings that might be going through her mind. It's not just a monetary thing, then. There's also a whole lot of sentimental value wrapped up in this particular object. Either way, we see this woman searching diligently for the coin. Now, while the coin is lost, its value is unusable. It might be hiding under some dust. But wherever it is, it's useless. The human soul is valuable to God. And understand this, it's not because humans are intrinsically valuable, it's because God has given us value. He created us in His image. He bestowed upon man blessing and honor and authority. God cares to reclaim what is His own and to put it to use in its proper function. For while it is lost, it is not functioning properly. While lost, man does not live his life in accordance with the purpose for which he was made. Only by being found and recovered will a man's life amount to something that lasts. Just like that coin is completely useless while it remains lost, but becomes useful once it's found, so is the case with all of humanity. While we remain lost, we are not able to perform the function for which we were originally created. It is in the Lord's service by redeeming grace that our value is made use of. One other observation from Charles Spurgeon. If you've lost your money, it's equally lost into whatever place it may have fallen. So all men are alike lost, but they have not all fallen into the like condition or apparent defilement. In other words, whether the lost coin happens to be under some dust, whether it has rolled underneath the bed, lost is lost no matter what its immediate surroundings are. So it is, whether you've fallen into the vilest of places and engaged in the most wicked of deeds, or if you've kept yourself in upstanding societal connections and have engaged in moral behaviors, either way, lost is lost. And you're in need of being found. We'll explore this even more next week. But the Pharisees were themselves lost and in need of being found. If you're lost, it's a small consolation to say that you are relatively good. What does relatively good mean if you're lost? It doesn't mean anything. If you're lost by nature, then you must be found by grace in order to be saved. One disease can kill a man. It doesn't matter that there's eight other diseases that he didn't have. All it takes is one deadly disease. All it takes is one critical organ failure, and the whole body is dead. It doesn't matter that he didn't have a whole bunch of other diseases that he might have otherwise could have had. If he's dead, he's dead. Lost is lost. We must be done with these relative comparisons with other people. I am more righteous than so-and-so. It doesn't matter. You're lost. And apart from God saving you, finding you, rescuing you, you will find the judgment to come very severe. This is the situation of the lost, the plight that they're under, and the need that they have. Second question, what is required for the lost to be found? What is required for the lost to be found? Let's first of all consider the work involved in seeking. We see a seeking shepherd here. He takes immediate, decisive, and determined action. Now, I want you to note this. A big obstacle that keeps rearing its ugly head in the Pharisees' life and in their responses, their reactions to Jesus, is their continual refusal to admit who Jesus really is. As long as they do that, they will not get and understand His work. If you deny Jesus' as person, you won't understand His work. You see, the person and work of Christ are linked together. If you understand who He really is, then you begin to understand what He has done. But if, if you refuse who He really is, then you'll never get what He has done. They would acknowledge Jesus as the good shepherd, for example. Then his actions make sense. Yeah, a shepherd goes after a lost sheep, obviously. Although, 
we are talking to a group of under-shepherds who seem to have completely messed up their responsibilities in this regard. They're not caring for the lost. They're not binding up the wounded. They're not attending to the needs of God's people. Didn't they remember the words of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do they see their position as under-shepherds to show care and compassion towards the lost, towards the hurting? Have they forgotten God's promise to shepherd His own people in Ezekiel 34? Look at that passage not long ago when we were studying through John 10 and Jesus' declaration that He is the Good Shepherd, which is really a fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. Let me read just a couple verses from that. This is starting in verse 11, Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will leave them to rest, declares the Lord God. Listen to this. I will seek the lost. Bring back the scattered. Bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and strong I will destroy. I'll feed them with judgment. You see, once you recognize who Jesus is, then you'll understand why He did what He did. As the Good Shepherd, Jesus will not quit seeking His sheep till He has found each and every last one of them. And since all of us have gone astray, get this, guys, we all are in need of that personal attention of Jesus. We all need Him to come and find us. We all need Him to put us on His shoulders and carry us home. And note the steadfast assurance in the parables here. The shepherd seeks the one that is lost until he finds it. Look at it. Verse 4. And go after one who is lost until he finds it. Verse 5. When he has found it. Not if. When. He will find his lost sheep. You'll find each and every one of them. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. He'll go to any length to find his lost sheep. Wherever they're scattered to, the good shepherd will find his sheep and carry them home. And once he finds them, as we've mentioned, he'll put them on his shoulders and carry them. He transfers to himself the burden of us. It's not surprising that that image would be the subject of so many sculptures and paintings. It seems to provide a glimpse of Christ's passion, his crucifixion. Jesus transfers to himself the burden of us. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Listen. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Verse 11. As a result of the anguish of His soul, He, speaking of God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge of the righteous one, My servant will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. New Testament says the same. First Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Philip Ryken says it this way. Every lost sinner who rests on the crucified Christ will be carried home. Every lost sinner who rests upon the crucified Christ will be carried home. Kenneth Bailey encourages us to consider what security is found in this truth. Some see the shepherd's action here as reckless. He leaves the 99 to go find one? Obviously, we don't necessarily have every detail. He might have attended to their own safety before he left to go and find the one. But regardless, Bailey makes a great point. He replies, It's Jesus' willingness to go after the one that gives the rest security. If one is sacrificed for the rest, then each individual lives in fear. 
But if the shepherd paid the highest price for one, he gives profound security to the many. If every single one is important to the shepherd, then what does that say about, if he goes after the one, what does that say about the rest? You see, Christian security rests in Christ's love for us. If it depended upon our love for Christ, that would be a very shaky foundation, wouldn't it? Praise the Lord that our security rests in Christ's love for us. And that provides a sure foundation. How about the searching woman? A seeking shepherd and a searching woman. She's committed to careful, painstaking, methodical work. The woman knows the coin was lost within her house, although it would be difficult to find given the conditions of housing in that day. Typically, homes had no windows or very small ones at best, which meant that even daytime didn't provide much light inside of the house. So the woman would have to work by lamplight. And given the typical situation for flooring, a good deal of sweeping might also be necessary to uncover the coin. But can you imagine that scene as you sweep dust? Anybody swept dust before? What happens inevitably is all that gets kicked up into the air, and now you're using a, not even a flashlight, right? A lamp, and you're trying to find this coin in very, very difficult conditions. This would not be an easy process. She conducts a careful, systematic, scrutinous search until she finds the coin. Again, same thing here. She'll search carefully until she finds it. Verse 9, when she finds it. Not if, when. The house is turned upside down that the coin might be found. The analogy to Christ's ministry is simple. Jesus' love is active. Just as the shepherd and woman didn't sit idly regarding the lost sheep and silver coin, but took decisive, heroic, diligent, persistent action... So Jesus didn't sit still, but instead took decisive, heroic, diligent, persistent action. He's not sitting still in heaven waiting anxiously for sinners to find themselves, whatever that means, and return to him. He went to find them. He seeks them. He left his glorious abode in heaven with, with his Father. He humbled himself, being made in the likeness of men, to seek and save the lost. And he would not stop short of accomplishing his purpose. Nothing stops Christ from accomplishing his purpose. He made atonement for his lost sheep's transgressions. He provided his perfect righteousness for them. He picked them up and bore them home with complete joy. Jesus spared no expense to save the lost. He didn't withhold even his very life to rescue them. He died that they might live. He was bruised that they might be healed. He was rejected that they might be accepted. He bore their shame that they might partake in His glory. And He bore their sorrow that they might enjoy and share in His joy. Which brings us to the last thing to be mentioned about this work of seeking. It's the joy that's involved in finding. The joy that's involved in finding. Again, look at these two parables. The seeking shepherd. It's joy that fuels his seeking and his carrying. Upon finding the lost sheep, the shepherd carries the sheep home, and he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He doesn't kick the sheep around, nasty, ugly, horrible, rebellious sheep. He picks up the sheep, and he brings it close to him. And we're told the attitude of the shepherd is not begrudging every step. Oh, I've got to walk away. He's joyous. Look at it, verse 5. When he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. glorious news this is. Sinners never have to worry about whether Jesus will take them. He delights to save the lost. He, as the author and perfecter of faith, endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy set before Him. He's gone to all these lengths for the joy set before Him. If you've ever found something that you have lost, you've identified with this. There is celebration that comes with finding something that's lost. There is tremendous celebration that comes with finding that which is lost. Both parables also make us aware of the fact that this joy overflows. And it calls others into this joy. 
to make sure no one missed the connection, Jesus gives an emphatic explanation after each of these parables. Great joy accompanies His saving work. All of heaven is inundated with joy. All the angels rejoice in response to God's saving work accomplished through Christ. Joy is fitting the repentance of sinners. And Jesus explains, joy is not fitting those not having a need of repentance. Now, note this. Verse 7 is an interesting one. I tell you, in the same way, there will be... And again, if, you, if you're reading this word, for most of your translations, it should be italicized. Be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The italics tells us that that's being supplied. The word is not literally there. It reads, they tell you in the same way, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner... And then there's a phrase that indicates something like than, and then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So, most of the translators here agree and put in this phrase, this word, more joy. In other words, there's more joy in the one sinner who repents than over the 99 needing no repentance. But it has been suggested by others that perhaps the better word that should be found here is not the word better than, but rather than. Better is being supplied. So we can instead supply rather. In other words, there's joy in heaven over one who repents rather than the 99 who need no repentance. I think either way, even if you read it the other way, better than, the meaning reduces to that. The meaning reduces to this idea that Jesus is saying there is joy in heaven in response to the repentance of sinners, not their resoluteness to deny their own need of repentance. Note this. People say, well, what does it mean? Somebody Who's not in need of repentance? Well, all of us as sinners are in need of repentance. The point he's making here is that those, their own view of themselves, they don't think they need repentance. So they live as if they have no need of it. They are ignorant. They are self-deceived. Jesus says there is joy in heaven over those who are sought, the lost that are sought and found, who are made aware of their lostness and are brought home. Genuine conversion involves so much joy that it overflows from the heart of God our Savior to all of heaven. All of heaven joins in this joyous occasion. Who would not want to join in such a celebration? question to hold on to for next week. This is where we begin to see the contrast that Jesus is painting. Those who have entered into His joy will rejoice with others who are lost but now are found. A lack of joy in the salvation of sinners may indicate that you have not entered into His joy. Alfred Edersheim comments, Pharisaism said, and here we quote literally, There is joy before God when those who provoke Him perish from the world. Let's begin for a minute. Here's home base for the Pharisees. There is joy before God when those who provoke Him perish from the world. They hope that God would judge the lost when they should have been hoping for their salvation. Jesus said, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus here is just reteaching what He's already announced to them. Jesus is just reiterating the response to the Pharisees and Sadducees much earlier in His own ministry. He said in Luke 5, Remember, the Pharisees, again, and scribes, listen, began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? They're like a broken record, aren't they? They just keep bringing the same things up over and over and over. Jesus already answered these questions, but here he is again. And on that occasion, he said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And that come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's the glorious news. Do you sense your own sinfulness? Do you grieve over your own wickedness? Are you ashamed of your past conduct? Do you recognize that you deserve judgment, that you deserve eternal judgment and damnation in hell? If that's the case, you're positioned perfectly to be saved. Jesus welcomes sinners. Not only that, He seeks sinners. He pardons sinners. He grants them eternal life. He carries them home. 
And this is the attitude that all those who follow Christ must have as well. Riken says it this way, How easy it is to be as cynical as the scribes, thinking that some people are beyond redemption and not wanting to get involved in their problems. How hard it is to be as compassionate as Christ, searching and searching for sinners until they get saved. But if we're friends of the Good Shepherd, we'll learn His patience in the looking, and then we'll share in His joy in the finding. Bottom line, we're not called to withdraw into cocoons and insulate ourselves from people in this world. We, like our Savior Jesus Christ, must make connections with people for the purpose of sharing the Gospel with them. All the while, praying that the Holy Spirit will breathe new life into them, grant them eyes to see the blessed glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice in our Savior Jesus Christ who will stop at nothing to find His lost sheep. Let us thank Him for His deep, self-sacrificing love and that He delights to save the lost. I once was lost, but now I'm found. In this we have reason to be forever grateful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may You take the rich truths of the Gospel and etch them deep in our minds and hearts. Thank You for these wonderful pictures of Your compassion and mercy and grace and love extended to the even chief of sinners. Thank You that You have taken the initiative because apart from that, we would still refuse You. Apart from Your coming to us, rescuing us, we would still be lost. We would still be wandering. Apart from You carrying us home, we would be lost forever. Thank You for the marvelous news that In Christ, it is finished. It is done. It is complete. And may from that perspective, and from the joy that flows from understanding that, may we then mimic the life of our Savior Jesus. May cause us to rejoice in seeing the lost found. May we find it our great intentional work to be involved in this great mission of seeking the lost. Thank You that You allow us any place in this wonderful declaration. Thank You for allowing us to share in the joy that is found in Your heart and in all of heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.